Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel, and I'm glad to say we're reporting from Burnell Heights, San Francisco, California, in the near home studio, home library of Matthew Lassar. Welcome to my home. Thank you for having us. And of course, joining us is our other San Francisco resident, Jennifer Waits. Hello. Yeah, Matthew and I are rarely seen in the same place, even though we both live in San Francisco, so that's very exciting. Welcome to my home. It is exciting. <laughs> Thank you. For today's episode, we both we have some news to go through. It's been a while since all of us have been able to be in the same room, and it's and yet we have yet to be able to do an episode with all four radio survivors. The last episode, which just went live, it was Jennifer, Eric Klein, and myself live at the Grassroots Radio Conference, and uh, Jennifer and I will maybe do some recap a little later in this episode. And then, and we've done a couple episodes that way, and then we've done at least one episode before. It may be two years ago now. I think the three of us here at, at your at your fine abode. Are, are, are you? You must be both distantly aware of the fact that Radio Survivor will be ten years old soon. Yes, this coming spring, spring of twenty nineteen. So, are we going to have a party? We should do something. I I I think so. I think we should we should do something and have a party. Uh, radio survivors, people listening, especially folks who've who've been with us for this ride, uh, let us know what you think we should do. <laughs> Drop us an email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, we want to know, or drop us a line on our on our Facebook. But yes, we are we're at nine and a half now, give or take, yeah, a month, and uh, we're still here. <laughs> we, you know, and and I say this because. Uh, podcasts, radio shows in our area, as well as websites and publications have come and gone. Uh, the Current, which is like the the newspaper of public media, did a podcast for a couple of years called The Pub. And it was really good. I really liked it. And it, it was, it was uh, irreverent, cheeky at times, but also willing to, to pick at some, I think, persistent issues and controversies in public media, but it wasn't sustainable. And they, they folded up production this year. And I was sad to see that go. And yet we, we sort of trum, keep trundling along. Yeah, there really isn't, you know, Matthew had the original goal of of talking about radio, you know, not from the industry perspective. And there still really aren't that many people who are talking about radio from the perspective that we do of, of fans and participants and not the industry. Well, I, I'm pleased as punch as Hubert Humphrey. Why am I quoting you to Hubert Humphrey? <laughs> um, I'm pleased as punch that we're still here and that we're still doing all this great stuff. Yeah, I mean, as, as am I. And I think, you know, we've got some peers in like the Sounding Out blog um, and, and podcasts, which of course focuses on sound studies, which mm-hmm. we sometimes, you know, we, that's sort of a, a Venn diagram overlap between us and, uh, and that really fine, uh, podcast and a radio show. Uh, otherwise, you know, there are maybe there's some sort of podcast centric blogs and, uh, radio and podcasts out there that we, again, we, we have some kind of slight Venn diagram overlap, but increasingly those are very kind of industry focused as in podcast industry and since that's where I work Mm -hmm. that's my day job I'm aware of it but um you know I think yeah we still sort of stand out here as a a unique enterprise if I'm allowed to say that about ourselves yeah I mean I feel the same about college radio you know over these nine years 
there are publications and organizations that wrote about college radio culture in some way, shape, or form, and most of those have gone by the wayside, too. So maybe that's the survivor part of our name is, like, the yeah. writing about radio culture survivor as opposed to radio. You know, clearly radio is a survivor, but I think additionally this... Uh, you know, what we're doing is is something that a lot of people kind of turn away from. They say it's not sustainable. Uh, the the overlords at an organization, you know, shut down a company, so the affiliated radio work goes away. But we keep plugging along for the love of radio and sound. I I, I feel like we are in the post radio is dead era. Hmm. That is to say that there was this long period where everybody was pronouncing radio to be dead. And saying, um, Bloomberg wrote this rather amusing, we've talked about this before, this re- rather amusing article, finally, saying, declaring radio to be the cockroach of media. Um, <laughs> right. Because it, it just won't die, you know. It, it just it just keeps going and it just keeps going and it keeps, keeps adapting. And I think that um, the observers have given up predicting radio's death and are now just busily and militantly ignoring it. Um, ah. <laughs> you know, but, but radio it continues in, in terms of the industry itself. It's, right. it, it, you know, it struggles for this relevancy. And I think it is relevant, but it's still a struggle. Um, there was just an article uh, published, kind of an op-ed kind of piece, published this past week that uh, podcast industry people paid attention to where someone from uh, this ad agency called Ad Large. uh buys a lot of podcast ads, said that, well, radio is buying up podcasting. And, you know, case in point um, is that iHeartMedia, iHeartRadio, formerly Clear Channel, bought the podcast network How Stuff Works Mm -hmm. recently. Um, And then uh, Westwood One has been spending quite a bit of money in podcasting. And there's a company called Cadence 13, which is basically, which is a podcast network and monetization company that is owned by a radio company as well. And so, and if you go to any of the podcast conferences these days, there's a lot of radio people there now where they were looking at podcasting like cockroaches are now seeing that that's a place where they need to make sure they don't get their lunch eaten. And, you know, even though companies like Cumulus and uh, iHeart are saddled with an enormous debt load, they still have a lot of money compared to most of the existing podcast players. They still have a fair amount of capital somehow, some way, to spend on podcasting. So, you know, it's an interesting era where now the podcast companies are, you know, if you have a podcast company, and I work for a company called Midroll, which is now we call Stitcher, uh, we're now competing with iHeartMedia, which is a weird place, because in the past we would have said they're not really competitor, they're, we're sprinting past them. But, you know, radio maybe is is in a, a period of, of actual change. The industry maybe has stabilized to some extent. Who knows? The commercial industry, that is. And certainly, I mean, NPR has been a podcasting pioneer. So public radio and public media has been on the podcasting wagon for a very long time and has been a peer for a very long time. But I don't know how that falls into your post-radio-is-dead Well, I I think that everyone has accepted, at this point, the 
the notion that that radio is not is no longer fixedly attached to the AM/FM format. Right. That radio is now a variety of ways of transmitting um, um, audio information, and it isn't. It, and it is no longer. And, and AM/FM is no longer its identity. Um, like it used to be. And I think people were stuck on that for a very long time. And now people aren't stuck in that place anymore. They see radio as something that is is in a variety of formats. And in some ways, it may be that in the long run, the 20th century radio era is anomalous in that, you know, like print, right? We look at print in all these different ways, right? I mean, you know, from, you know, teletype to books to magazines and articles to LED displays to everything. Um, it was, it's probably anomalous that there was just like this one thing, AM, FM, um, that everybody... That defined was, kind of an, that, an audio media. That it defined kind of an audio media. And yeah. now... And, and this is actually more normal hmm. than that period. Wow. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I mean, so you, you dropped you dropped a bomb on me here. So to think about it, because I've we've talked a lot about radio as a platform, mm-hmm. right? This idea that it, it's it, it can be a media platform, and that yes, it is AM FM, but then there's all these things that radio stations do, right? Which can be online, which can be podcasts, which can be streaming radio, but can also be in the community. It can be festivals and things like this. But now, what you're saying, you're, you're taking this point and you're making it. Uh, a more articulate point, I think, than that, which is right. We have books, we have magazines, but you know, you can have an ebook, and we still all consider that print, right? And that now we have an expansive idea of what audio media means, and it's probably fueled by things like Pandora and Spotify. I think that I, I think what I, I, I want to hold on to the word radio. Okay, I think we've always accepted that audio. Would be a lot of different things. It would be records. Mm-hmm. It would be eight tracks. It would be you know right. you know MP3 files. It would be all these different things. And I think that radio has always been stuck in this idea that that's AM FM, mm-hmm. and now we're seeing a world in which radio, you know, bro- as DeForest mm-hmm. you know, envisioned it in the years before the First World War, one broadcasting to many. Um, Right, which, which accurately it, captures right, a podcast. Right, which is, and I think that we've always associated that with AM, FM, but no longer. I think that we are now, I think that the public now generally accepts that the idea of radio is now, now belongs in many different kinds of format homes. So Matthew, you're, you're teaching students right now, college students at, at University of California, San Francisco. I Cruz. teach, yes, yes. So do you think that, do you, do you have a sense of them? Do you ask them, is this, do, do they see radio this way? Well, they are overwhelmingly the podcast generation. Mm-hmm. You know, they all, they are all fixated on some podcast. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them are fixated on some podcast. They're always coming up to me and telling me about their podcast that, that they're listening to. And um, those podcasts are very important to them. Um, they often they're often sort of part of their identity you know the mm. part of their part of they listen to this podcast because this podcast sort of explains reality to them mm-hmm. um, in in important ways and um they continue to listen to FM radio but they overwhelmingly listen to it in their cars and um they don't listen and they don't listen to it at home mm-hmm. you know you, you know if, 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 I, I do I always do a survey 
at the beginning of classes, I always say, what, how do you listen to the radio in one way or another? And I say, how many of you listen to FM radio? And they all raise their hands. I say, how many of you listen to FM radio at home? And they all lower their hands. Um, they listen to it overwhelmingly in their cars. And it is something, but, but, but what they're really passionate about is uh, podcasts. Hmm. And the other thing that they're passionate about is Spotify playlists. Yeah. They're really into Spotify playlists. And some of them are really into YouTube playlists. Um, and they experience that as radio. You know, they experience that as, as this, you know, there's this playlist that somebody has, and that is from one to many. Um, so, so radio is, I mean, I think, I think in the post radio is dead era, what we've come to recognize is, is that radio is in many different places and it is no longer identified with AFM, AMFM. Yeah, I like that you pointed out YouTube as well. You know, we had talked a number of months ago on the show about how there are these pirate radio stations on YouTube, basically these live streaming radio stations, and they're not, and they're flying under the radar. I call them pirate because they don't quite fit into the royalty structure mm. that you have to pay. Uh, you know, and and there's a little bit of a whack-a-mole going on with YouTube finding them and shutting them down. And some of the stations, you know, go out of their way to play either Creative Commons licensed music, some music in which the creator has said, "No, I want this to be out." you know, with minimal copyright protection or they're even like solicit music from their fans, especially electronic music where there might be a lot of bedroom producers. But, you know, some also it's just they, they, they source whatever they can and they and, and and they play radio. And and they often have these like names like, you know, music for studying, you know, jazz for studying or chill out, ambient vibes. And uh, you know, as I wrote about it, once you've found one, you know, YouTube's algorithm starts throwing a bunch of them at you so you can go and dig deep. And they're live, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not videos, you know, and they're just usually like either an animated background or even just a title card. Um, and then people really use YouTube this way. And I was in uh, taking a lift to the airport uh, before coming here to uh, San Francisco and, you know, making small talk with the driver. And she's like, you know, where are you going? Going for work. Where do you work? I said, I work in podcast. She goes, oh, okay. I listen to this and I listen to Joe Rogan and I said oh, okay and she's like you know uh, and I, I listen to the car and I listen to it on YouTube because you know he posts all he does it in video he does it in audio so a lot of his audience is on mm. YouTube but in the video is very straightforward it's just like two cameras switch back and forth between him and his guest uh, but it's you know if you're going after that kind of young male audience which he does they're on YouTube that's who that's where you're going to find them and she just you know she turns you know she doesn't have the video on because she's driving, you know, and it's in, and, and and it's in the background, and but she pipes it over, and I say, well, you know, you can listen to the podcast in the car. She goes, oh, how do you do that? <laughs> she how to use YouTube, but didn't actually know how to listen how to pipe the podcast. I th I think for a lot of young people, YouTube, and certainly I have a daughter who's twelve. YouTube is is her entry point to music. So yeah. if she wants to hear a particular artist, she looks it up on YouTube and listens there. And I think that's the way a lot of a lot of kids are understanding the world of music. So that makes sense that somebody, it would be easier for them to find it on YouTube than to figure out how to download a podcast, even though those are both easy. Yeah. Well, but if that's like your portal that you're used to, it makes uh, sense. Yeah, I think YouTube has become like the, the, the venue for new music discovery for young people. It's really replaced AM, FM radio um, almost completely as, as the place where you, could, where you do that. And my only concern with that is that it's a monopoly platform. There is no competitor to YouTube. 
yeah. in any significant sort of way. And sound quality is, you know, for anybody who's at a radio station who has DJs playing things off YouTube, <sighs> you know, the sound quality obviously varies tremendously. So, you know, it's... Yeah, you can tell. And it's even worse if you're listening to it on the online stream because then it gets re-encoded in MP3, which further degrades the quality compared to what it was going out on the FM airwaves. Yeah, so... I think that in some contexts, however... Um, the variety of music that you can hear and the uniqueness of the uh, the playlists um, makes up for that. I mean, I think that... Of course, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that... I mean, I've always... this For me, having access to right. the music has always been more important than the, um, the, the, the utmost quality of the sound. And this goes all the way back to my days as a, um, as a salesperson for Sam Goody Records. When I would, I worked in a classical record department, and um, people would ask me for recommendations for famous classical piano works, and I would recommend something, but I would say that it was in mono, and they would go, "Oh no, I won't, I can't have it in mono. It has to be stereo." And I explained, "Well, the only way that you're going to hear Joseph Levine or Vladimir Horowitz or somebody like that play this masterpiece is if you hear it in." In mono. Because they're not recording new recordings. Because they're, 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 <laughs> yeah. they're dead, man. Um, um, and they're going, no, 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 it has to be. And there was a period where, you know, I had one customer who would only listen to things, buy things in quadraphonic. There was a, there was yes. a, brief, a right. brief moment in the history of, um, of, of disasters. And um, he drove me crazy. I mean, you know, he would just, it had to be quadraphonic. It was, a mediocre player playing it in quadraphonic was better than one of the great yeah, masters of the Yeah, I'm an audiophile. I like sound quality, but I, uh, you know, and there's often this battle amongst audiophiles over the, do they love stereo equipment or do they, do they love music? Right. And so right. do they love recordings because they happen to be recorded well or because the performance is evocative, right? And I go, I lean towards an evocative performance over absolute sound quality. Because, you know, even in the days of trading mixtape cassettes, you know... Uh, not spectacular quality, but having access to somebody's curated playlist was more important than the absolute fidelity that you might have Oh, yeah. I, to I totally agree on the access issue. And we talked, uh, you mentioned sounding out earlier. We talked to Jenny Stover on the show about sounding out. And on their podcast, they'll air things that are, you know, subpar quality. And they've gotten criticized for that. But they think, you know, access is more important than sound quality. I think... The, the issue I have is when, uh, you know, on YouTube, you might have a bunch of different people uploading the same thing and mm. there's variance in quality. So, you know, if, if you choose to play one of these over your radio show, which you're not supposed to do anyway, and you pick, you know, the worst quality version, to me, that's annoying. But I'm, I'm totally fine with DIY cassette tapes or recordings of of cylinders that you made on your iPhone. Like, I would rather be able to hear the music, too, than, right. you know, have... You know, some things you're not going to have the highest quality, but if it's just sort of intentionally bad, or you know, that's annoying. I should I I, I need to do some little name dropping here uh, at this point. Um, when I was a clerk at Sam Goody Records, um, one of my customers was the great jazz musician Rosan Roland Kirk, mm -hmm. um, mm. and um, he was an enormous fan of opera, mm -hmm. and also of he was constantly checking in on new classical music. But his rule was he wanted nothing digital. Mm -hmm. He would, he refused. He wanted, he wanted LPs. He wanted, he wanted acoustic everything. Yeah. So he would, I would, and he, he was blind. 
So I would read him the records. And um, uh, he wanted old opera recordings, but nothing remastered. You know, basically just yeah. tapes of, the, of, of it coming into the horn. Right, he wanted nothing remastered. He want and with and with new music, he wanted no digital instruments. It had to all be acoustic in, instruments. And he was, he was, he was on the opposite end of the spectrum from the those those quadraphonic. Customers. Right, right, right. You know, I want to take us to uh, to really what is the first form of digital radio, and that's Sirius XM satellite radio. Yes, it is the very first form of, of at least the United States digital radio existing. Yes. Because uh, it predates internet radio, and of course predates HD radio, and is digital. Uh, Matthew, you recently uh, wrote a piece at radiosurvivor.com uh, about uh, your recent explorations with uh, satellite radio. Well, what's interesting is, is that I've been writing about um, Sirius XM satellite radio for years, as of, as of you, as of you. Um, and um, I covered the Sirius XM radio satellite merger for Ars Technica uh, back when I was writing writing for Ars Technica, which was a very contested merger. I mean, it was, yes, you know, there were you know the broadcast industry was you know up in arms. Well, it's because it was intended to be a duopoly. Yes. The, the, the entire satellite system was licensed under the pretense that it would be a duopoly, that it would not be a monopoly. Right. And so when the when Sirius and XM went to regulators and said, well, we'd like to merge, it was in direct opposition to the fundamental founding precepts of the medium. It was very funny to see all these broadcaster, you know, websites saying, stop the mo- stop the monopoly, right? <laughs> you know, you know, the National Association of Broadcasters, now the, the, the great enemy of monopolies and oligopolies. Right. Um, Anyway, uh, you know, I did that, and but and I wrote about, of course, Sirius XM for um, for uh, my book um, Radio Two Point uploading the first broadcast medium, and I identified the merger, the moving of Howard Stern from radio, from you know, from from, from broadcast radio to um, Sirius as like a major moment in the history mm-hmm. of digital, of, you know, of digital radio. But I've never, I never really listened to it very much. This but, is the deep dark secret. Yes, I never, I never really listened to it very much. And then I got a couple of about two months ago, I traded in my old Honda stick shift. Yes, I'm driving a stick shift around San Francisco, believe it or not, um, for a Honda Fit, um, a little persimmon colored Fit that I that's up on the block, up on the up on the street there. And um, they it gave me a free a free sample of Sirius XM radio. And there's a um, section of it. That's called. It's all the words are abbreviated, so it's like jizz, jizz classical standard. Mm-hmm. So jazz classical standard, and it's basically jazz, classical music, Broadway, big band, and standards and opera, and it's like exactly my vision of hybrid highbrow, right? I mean, it's not exactly, but it's mm-hmm. it's very close to my vision of hybrid highbrow, and I've been loving listening to these channels uh some of the channels repeat themselves but the thing is is that you can very easily switch back and forth so you can be listening to big band and you can be listening to so this split. is a set of channels rather yeah. than being one individual station it's right. sort of a, a, a sort and they're of all segment sort of, of them. and they're all sort of right next to each other mm-hmm. um i mean you you sort of get interrupted occasionally you switch a channel and you wind up in kids bop radio oh yeah um which is basically a little little boys and girls singing about how much they love each other as if they were 35 years old or something like that. It's really strange. Well, isn't some of it covers of 
popular songs right. by kids. You know, too. <laughs> um, but and it's really, but I mean, it's really, you know, the, the, I love the forties channel. You know, it's it's really wonderful. The the real jazz channel is really great. I mean, all it's very well curated, and some of the stations like the Broadway Channel and the Metropolitan Opera Channel um, have lots of great shows talking about opera and about Broadway by people who are really passionate about about this stuff, and they um, interview people, and it really is um, a wonderful world. And I have to say that I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure that I that 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 area is probably not. Sirius XM's biggest moneymaker. No, sure. it's a rounding error, though, for you know, them. Yes. Right, to hire, and they probably don't have a ton of program directors. They might even only just have one or two right. who have a fair degree of, of uh, multiple genre speciality uh, and who can, who can take care of it for them. I don't know. How are these hosted? Um, a lot of them are hosted. Some, some of them. They, a lot of them seem to be hosted. Um, the 40s channel is not hosted. Yeah. It just has this guy who sounds like... Um, a cockney, a cockney Englishman who keeps on saying, "You're listening to the, you're listening to the Sirius XM Forties Channel," you know, and and then you welcome to the Savoy Express. Welcome to the Savoy <laughs> Express. You you know that you know what I'm talking yeah, about, no, right? We're we're big fans. The Forties um, Junction satisfies every member of our household. Yes. So my, my 12-year-old daughter, that she will request that frequently in the car because we have it in one of our cars, and it's. Um, it's good family fun, you know. We all love '40s music. Yes, and um, and you can and there's a Sinatra channel, mm-hmm. which is not just Sinatra. It's actually a lot of different um, people, but it sort of it sort of orbits around Frank Sinatra's voice. And then there's um, a bunch of other jazz channels. Um, there's a channel called Watercolors. And that's smooth jazz. Okay. Um, but they've decided... Smooth jazz lives. Smooth jazz lives. Yes, I know. We've been talking about smooth jazz. And and watercolors is really... It's really smooth jazz. Is it? But, I was curious about that one. Does that cross over into New Age? Not much. Okay. Um, uh, the, New Age? New Age. New Age. <laughs> it sounds um, like it would. And speaking of that, I've, I've seen New Age categories in a number of college radio stations recently, which wow. really shocked me. I don't know if it's like something left over. I'm certain it's left over. Although it, it, at, my, at the station I volunteered in many years, we had a, the big chart. You know, you have the color-coded CDs, as you often do in college and community stations. And uh, they had one for New Age. and But I, it was a joke because it said, Rhymes with Sewage. Ah. Newage. Newage. <laughs> I'm suddenly flashing back to music from the hearts of space. Right. And, um, space music. Space That's music. We called it. Yes. I like space music, but but New Age, uh, there's something about New Age that I really well, The people like. who are way into ambient music would definitely draw a bright line between what they do in New Age. Yeah. Whether or not it's easily definable, I don't know. Well, getting back to Sirius XM, I just it's it, it's interesting to me. It, it it feels like this particular part of the operation is sort of flotsam and jetsam that they that they have, but they don't quite know what to do with. It would be nice if they had more than one classical channel. They have an opera channel and a classical symphony channel. I'd like it if they had a performers channel, soloists channel, with you know pianists, violinists, you know, because that's such a dynamic. Um, part, but I'm prob- I'm guessing that that's probably not going to happen um, anytime soon. But it's very, in- you know, it's a very enjoyable little sort of hidden part of the Sirius XM network. 
when you're not listening to NFL news and <laughs> Howard Stern and people like that. Yeah, SiriusXM sort of uh, is better at splitting other genres. Like, if you like metal, there's like four channels for metal, you know, or maybe five or six, because like there's the Ozzy Osbourne channel. And there's death metal, and they, they get it way into the into the genres. But perhaps there's more listeners. Well, and you know, so they have a bunch of decade channels. So in addition to 40s, they've got you know 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. They have eight, 80, eight on 80s. It's called. I think it's Channel Eight, and it's eight on 80s. Yes. So, but they don't go backwards, uh, you know. And I'm interested in even older music too. So. You know, I'm I'm curious why they wouldn't have 30s or 20s, and maybe 40s is already so niche that it's they... probably it's probably yes, it's probably so niche. Also, uh, the availability of the recordings in digital probably gets complicated, and then probably they would start getting complaints about sound quality because a lot of them would have been transcribed from 78s or or cylinders. Right. And that's what I do like about your friend McShwarmack's Yes, show. DJ McShwarmack. You know, because I visited him once and he was playing music from, you know, music that was, uh, you know. From so like, what is this show again? Remind us. It's on KPOO. It's, uh, he is a, he, he has been a wanderer. He was on KLX. Then he was on um, Radio Valencia. And I think that he's more or less stabilized at this point. And what is the show name? Do you remember? It, well, um, it's it was... The, the last time I remember it, and I used to be on it a lot, was the Gramophony Baloney show. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, he plays really old stuff. Yeah. Stuff that's taken from cylinders and, um, and yeah, the, the time I visited, he was playing all material that was like 1920 or earlier. So, I mean, that kind of material I would love a channel for because you just, you just don't hear <laughs> but it's it very, And I'm sure it exists on internet radio somewhere. I'm certain somebody has made that channel, but to get it on satellite radio is probably probably yeah. going to be difficult. Uh, you're listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. Uh, with me here, I'm Paul Reesman. With me here is Matthew Lassar. Hello. And Jennifer Waits. Greetings. We're, we're coming to you uh, from Shea Lassar here in San Francisco, California. And Welcome to Bernal Hill. In the lovely Bernal Hill neighborhood and it's uh we're catching up it's been a while since the three of us were together in one place and we're wishing that eric klein could be here with yeah. us yeah hello He's eric in portland oregon we say hello and uh you know you can find our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast this is episode number 163 so we'll have uh citations and links to things that we talk about on the show to help you follow up and of course uh we are a radio show you may be listening to us on one of our great affiliate stations uh, and if you want to, you can also hear us as a podcast, of course, at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. If you have any comments about anything we talk about on the show, drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And we were, so we were just talking about Sirius XM and your sort of explorations of it, Matthew, in the uh, hybrid highbrow, uh, re- we'll rename it for them, the hybrid highbrow channels. And uh, we just learned that recently that Sirius XM has purchased Pandora Radio. Well, somebody was going to perch. I mean, some, I mean, somebody was going to have to save that thing. I mean, I mean, I, I, as I, as you mentioned to me, you reminded me that I wrote something to that effect on Radio Survivor, you know, several years ago. I mean, Pandora's been leaking money, mm-hmm. you know, since for, since the beginning. It's it's the mo- it's the most um, in insolvent yeah. um, radio service that everybody loves in history. 
They lost $200 million so far this year in 2018. Oh, details, you know. <laughs> and they were purchased by SiriusXM for $3.5 billion. Whoa. $3.5 billion. Wow. Now, I mean, if I'm SiriusXM, this deal is a no-brainer. Because the thing about satellite radio is that it's, it's almost a transient technology, I think. Right, so it was invented, you know, it debuted in the early 2000s, yes. right? So yeah. when, at a point in which internet radio started to become practicable, but we did not really have, we did not have wi- wireless to speak of. You, Wi-Fi barely existed, and we didn't have wireless data. Yeah. So the idea of there being a separate radio channel that, would, you know, a radio service with hundreds of channels and digital Satellite was the only practicable way of doing it, right. of, of transmitting it. And, and, and certainly the strength has been in the automobile. And that's both uh, because of the nature of the technology. You need to be outside, right? You need to have a clear view of the sky, um, which cars do. Satellite radio is a bigger pain to try and receive in your home. If you using an actual satellite radio, you usually have to get a little antenna that you stick out a window or something. Um, so it's always been kind of a mobile technology. Never really took off in the home in the same way. Um, but they own the car, and one of the ways they, that they've integrated in the car is that they made deals with all the auto manufacturers, right? You mentioned, Matthew, that you know you have it in your Honda Fit, which is a brand new car. I assume it's a factory radio that it came yes. with. And they give car, and one of the big ways that they achieved any kind of sizable footprint is that they... They do these giveaways where you buy a car and you get six months free or something like that. So you get you get a taste of satellite radio. But that's probably on the decline, right? As uh, So there's lots of people who maybe get their taste of satellite radio and they get their six months and they're like, ah, it's not really worth continuing to pay for the service. And, you know, so they no longer pay for it. And the other issue, and this is really important, is that um, car ownership and driving is um – is on the decline with young people. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, uh, the, all that student loan craziness that we allowed to happen rather than publicly funding um, universities um, adequately, um, that's kicking in now. Yeah. Um, and not to mention housing costs. And so cars are not a great, you know, not always the option for young people. So they're not, they're not taking advantage of, of these kind of things. But they are listening to Pandora. Yes, they Pandora are. Pandora is still the most popular internet radio service. Yes. So, you know, what, what, what Pandora lacks in profits, it makes up for an audience size. That's right. And specifically that audience that is not going to Sirius XM, I'm, I'm guessing. Well, what's hopeful for me about this is that Pandora was always, has always been a great concept in the sense of New music discovery and music diversity. But it's never been great in terms of developing audiences because there are no audiences at Pandora, not the way, certainly not the way I define audiences. You and I, Jennifer, have a, a classical Pandora station. I can't say to you, did you just hear that? Because it's already. Because you, you know, didn't hear the same thing. We're never going to hear this. We're never going to hear the same thing. So it's not radio in that sense. Um, it's not broadcast radio in the in the classic broad, in the classic um, one-to-many sense. It's basically one-to-one many times. Um, and I'm hoping that the synergy between SiriusXM and Pandora encourages Pandora to experiment, to experiment with more 
broadcast radio stations that draw from the incredible Pandora library. Hmm. You know, uh, Pandora has been making investments in podcasting. Right. Um, you know, it started out and it's a deal that's still going on. They made a deal with This American Life and with Serial uh, in particular. It was the first real major podcast to be featured on Pandora so that alongside your Pandora stations you can you can also find podcasts. Um, and I can imagine that's also an area where uh, Sirius would like to see get some more uh, footing as well. I mean, much of Sirius programming is talk, of right. course. Um, much of it is music as well. Uh, but because of the existing licensing deals that Sirius and, po- and Pandora have with labels, uh, their ability to do podcasting that includes music... You know, so that something more like a hosted show, right? So more like a radio show, really. Right. But that available, you know, as a podcast, uh, you know, uh, on demand, let's say, right? Rather than necessarily as a downloaded thing, um, you know, uh, might be there. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing. But yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It, what, what, what makes, but I still wonder, uh, given all the money involved, is, is, is is the profit there? <laughs> is the revenue there? Um, you know, what are they able to? You know, with Sirius is 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 a you know is a is both an ad supported and um, subscription medium. The uh, there's no ads on the music channels, correct? On Sirius XM, but there are ads on the talk channels. Yes, that's the breakdown. And then Pandora, of course, is both ad supported. You just like a free tier, and then you can pay to get rid of the ads. Right. And you can pay to get more, um, and it's sort of a, a an interesting stew of, of monetization strategies. And I wonder how all of that works well, out. The you know Pandora. I've noticed that Pandora ads tend to be very annoying. I don't know why that is, but I but there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of ability. Do you shop at O'Reilly Auto Parts a lot. Yeah, um, <laughs> there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of. Um, they don't seem to be able to pair the content with the ads no, very well. They're just they're just really radio ads, you know. And so you know, there you are, there you are listening to Mozart piano concerto, and the next thing you know, there's you know some lawyer saying that you know if you were hit by a right. by, a, by by a truck between 2006 and 2007 and still haven't recovered from your wounds, call us. You it's know? not like the old <laughs> it's not like the old WQXR commercials. Yeah. Right. When when it was owned by the New York Times, it was a classical station, a commercial, and all the ads were voiced by the, you know, the melodious baritones of the of the hosts, right? There were no uh, yes. regular radio spots, but they would they That's would tell right. you about the wine shop and all of these uh, K- KKH KKH KKHI which was a classical radio station around here back in the day, in and which, which was yeah. hosted by um, the great um, um, actor um, Scott Beach, mm-hmm. and he would do all the ads, um, you know, and he would. So they matched the tone. They matched. They matched. So they basically like a there, was a, there, was, there was a seamlessness to it, which does not exist when you listen to ads on Pandora. So it's so we'll have to see what happens here. I mean, uh, maybe it will stem some of the bleeding in Pandora. If I were to guess as well, Sirius XM may um, also implement some more uh, fiscal discipline, financial discipline on Pandora as well. Because Pandora has basically been running on uh, venture capital, I believe. Mm. You know, I mean, I think I think they're capitalized. I do not think they're not they are not tr- publicly traded, are they? 
I don't think I so. Don't no, think no, so. no. It was probably you know, and 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 without more profit, it would have been difficult for them to uh, to have an IPO. Although you never know anymore. I'm well, not what, a financial what, analyst. It 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 just fascinates me that year after year after year for such a long time, Pandora has been able to attract all this venture capital, despite its complete lack of on. Um, of, of steady profit margin. It's good because they're still the number one, right? They're still the number one, you know, basic online radio service. There's also this, this, this wonderful thing that happens when you owe lots of money, which is that once you owe lots and lots of money, like billions of dollars, it's like, ah, well, we'll just spend some more money. Because yeah. Well, those investors got their payday. Right. I haven't looked at the – I've not examined all the, the financials to see what – those investors in Pandora got, but they wouldn't have signed off on it if it wasn't going to uh, yes. to help them out in some significant sort of way. So, we'll, well, we'll, it'll be curious to see what happens, though. What is what are the changes wrought there um, at Pandora and and at SiriusXM? You know, what, what how it continues to stay afloat. Of course, you can listen to SiriusXM online, right? Right? Did they have a, a parallel internet service that works on smartphones and computers and such? If you subscribe, it, the more the more places you listen to it, the more you have to pay. Right. So, if you're in the teacher income <laughs> yeah, as, as am I, you have to make certain choices. Right. I uh, totally understand. Uh, so, Jennifer, you and I had an opportunity to be at the Grassroots Radio Conference uh, a week ago as we record. So, it was October 5th, 6th, and 7th. You came down to Portland, Oregon. Last week, we did a live radio survivor with our friends Ernesto Aguilar, program director at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, and Vanessa Maria Graber, who is the general manager of, of WPPM at Philly Cam, uh, LPFM, one of the uh, urban LPFMs that couldn't have existed five years ago, um, that is also co-sided with a, uh, with a public access television station. Uh, people can listen to that as episode number 161. But uh, I have to say, I had a better time than I might have anticipated. I mean, let, me, let me admit. And, and so I, I, I had an inside scoop on, on a lot of the organizing. I worked, I did some outreach and some of the communication work, working with the volunteers at KBOO, who, uh, KBOO, Portland Community Radio Station, which hosted it. So I, I knew all the great work that was going into it. And, I, and so I, it, when I say I had a better time than I thought, it wasn't because I thought the organizing wasn't going to be on point. But in, in community radio and in grassroots radio, uh, you never know who's going to show up, right? And, and, and what I mean by that is not that, that it's not the, at the personality level, but um, sometimes you just don't know what the, uh, what the vibe is going to be. And I thought the vibe ended up being very positive and very constructive. Well, yeah, I had high expectations that it would be fun and interesting and engaging. And it exceeded my already high expectations, so... I, I agree. It, I had a great time. It was jam-packed with really high-quality sessions. So I feel like I came away with practical practical stuff that I can use at my station, um, but also lots of ideas for stories for Radio Survivor and for the podcast. Uh, and also, it was great to meet in person some people that I've only talked to or emailed with before. So we met a few people who we've interviewed for Radio Survivor, um, including Elizabeth De La Quest, who is at the station in Antarctica. And 
And she came to GRC during this brief period of time where she's back in the United States because she's about to head back to Antarctica. She said a wonderful thing to me. Uh, she said that, you know, when we talked with her, it was the dead of winter there in Antarctica. And so, uh, you know, so that's dark, you know, all, you know, 24 hours a day. And she said sort of morale's at like, the, it's at its, at, at, its most, at its greatest ebb at that moment in time. And, uh, you know, it took a while for us to put the interview together because it being this government installation, she had yeah, to get exactly. approvals to, yeah. to make sure that, you know, everything would be on the up and up. And uh, she said that talking to us uh, really kind of gave her, uh, buoyed her in these, in the dark, literal dark times of, of winter in Antarctica because we were so excited to learn about the radio station. It reinforced it. Oh, I am doing something cool. I am yeah. doing something really amazing down here, running an FM radio station, um, you know, in one of the most remote regions uh, of the globe. I so love that. It's I love nice that. To make those those uh, contacts. It was also great to meet uh, Elizabeth uh, Rodano, who's at uh, KPPQ, um, which is one of our affiliates. So definitely meeting folks who uh, are at stations that carry radio survivor is always a wonderful thing. And to hear that feedback um, and, and learn, you know, that people are listening into stations and elsewhere. Because, uh, you know, uh, radio is this kind of medium. It's still, you know, as much as we try to make it interactive, it's still fairly one way. <laughs> our voice is going out in digital numbers and over airwaves. So it's, it's really nice to have that opportunity to meet up with folks, uh, especially because we try to be, we try to be in this community of community radio and grassroots radio, uh, producers and activists. Um, well, and it was very interesting for me to, to do the live podcast recording of the radio survivor show. Um, Eric and Paul have done that previously at a, co- at a conference, but I'd never been live on stage recording a podcast. So it was, a bit scary, a bit different. I mean, it's kind of like any of us who do radio are normally like at KFJC where I do a a college radio show, a music show. I'm looking at a wall while I do my show. I'm not looking at an audience of people. And maybe once a year I'll DJ out at a KFJC event where I'm DJing in front of people. And it's, you know, a lot more anxiety provoking it's a very different experience and it becomes more of a performance so it was interesting to be on stage having a panel discussion that's also a radio show and thinking about the audience of listeners in the room and the audience of listeners over the airwaves at these unseen radio stations and and people at their computers listening to our podcast um so it was terrifying but also really fun and also Interesting to hear from people who said that they enjoyed watching us do a podcast in front of them because it was fun for people to see how we interacted and what kinds of visual cues we used to signal who was going to talk. Um, and we're going to do another one of these at the College Broadcasters Inc. conference in Seattle in uh, in October, later in October. And and I've heard from people ahead of time that, that they thought it would be fun to actually see a podcast recording. So beyond just the conversation, I think some people like to look behind the curtain and see what it looks like to be doing a podcast. Yeah, I don't know if you've attended a, a live podcast. I haven't. Else. You haven't. Have you, Matthew? I've attended um, live broadcasts, mm-hmm. but I've never attended a live podcast. And, 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 and what kind of live broadcasts would that Well, Well, um, I've uh, commercial stations that sometimes 
do live um, broadcasts at the Metreon, which is a big movie theater complex mm-hmm. in downtown um, San Francisco. And, of course, the KPFA in Berkeley. What kind of broadcast? Would it be the actual hosted show? The actual hosted show. Yeah, okay. Um, and um, KPFA in um, Berkeley, of course, when they have their craft sh- crafts fair, they often have a live broadcast. of. And um, there, were, there were times back when I was more involved with Pacifica where I would go to the crafts fair, they'd be broadcasting live, and somebody would, would wave to me and tell me to come over. Right, and that's and a I, bit more like a remote, right, where they come in. Is, is it, or do they do this like a full show? Like, the remote is usually like, there's a few minutes, we're live here, we talk for a few minutes, and then it goes, send it back to the studio, or is that more like a live show? Um, this was really a live show. Okay. They, were, they were broadcasting music, they were talking to people. It was nice. Live podcasts are big business now. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, there are podcast festivals of all sorts where they bring together live podcasts. Uh, And I think it it is that because the nature of podcasting, you know, and radio shows that are podcast-like, I think, that, you know, people develop this relationship with the hosts. You know, we talk very directly, I think. We talk to each other. We try to also talk to listeners. And they get to know you and your personality, and it is, I do think it's something different. I've attended a lot of live podcasts, in part because I work in the business, and my company has thrown live podcast festivals as well. Um, And then Eric and I have gone to events like PodCon, which happened up in Seattle about a year ago, which was both live performances as well as, uh, you know, panels and things for people interested in getting into podcasting or talking about pop culture and podcasting. And it does bring a different dimension. And, of course, you know, folks at Grassroots Radio Conference, I mean, that's a lot. That's our audience, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, we we were scheduled during dinner on Saturday, so we had sort of a captured audience for at least part of it. Um, Captured yet distracted at times, so. Right. Like, that's a bit unnerving. Like, you know, it's so some people are leaving midway through or eating their dinner. um, So... You have to sort of work in your head to get beyond that. And, it's like being at the craft fair. Yeah. You know, not feel bad that somebody's walking out. You That's know? right. Yeah, you have to sort of just put it put it, put it, it aside, which is a little different than when people go to, a, I think, a, a festival or go, you know, pay good money to go see Call Your Girlfriend live or My Brother and My Brother Me live when they pay like 15, 20 bucks. You're going to tend to treat it more like a concert or something and, right. and have your more directed attention. But... Um, one of the things that I enjoyed, I, I, I enjoyed and appreciated about this Grassroot Trio conference is that it seemed like there was a great awareness and willing to have difficult conversations about inclusion and inclusion in diversity along a lot of spectra. Uh, so both, you know, racial uh, with regard to, to gender, um, class and age, right? And there's some real recognition that community radio has to have young people involved if it's going to survive. Mm -hmm. And that there are still many stations where, you know, many of the primetime slots are dominated by people who've been there for for 20-plus years. Uh, You could say 40 years. 40 years even, yeah. Yeah, I've been there. I I know at least one radio station around here previously mentioned where such individuals... Still reside. And it's not that someone shouldn't, you know, I don't want to sort of say wholesale, kick them all off, uh, or that someone shouldn't have a show for that long. But that sometimes that's more a matter of, um, I don't know, over-reverence, perhaps, <laughs> being nice. Inertia? Inertia. Sometimes it's because in many stations, um, an air slot is more like 
property. It's more like having a deed than it is about uh, an opportunity to serve an audience. It's complicated. You know, there there are stations that redo their program schedule every six months, you know, and you have to reapply for your show. A lot of them are college stations or have a genesis from college stations where that is sort of a practical necessity because of the changing right. uh, quarters or semesters. And even I even know some community stations that switch to that model, which, you know, probably hard to angered people. Yeah. Um, you know, at KFJC, you pretty much have your show unless you screw up in some way. And and that's the station where you volunteer. Yeah, the station. You know, so I've had my show for nearly 20 years. So I don't know. I don't know if that's a good model, really, because I mean, we always have open time slots. So and we have new people coming in all the time. Well, but, I think that's the balance. Right. right. Is um, that are you is there fresh blood? And, and, and can there be fresh blood without there having to also be a bloodbath? Right. Meaning, do we have to just toss everything out, toss the baby out with the bathwater? Or, you know, are we finding ways in which we can engage young people? Also engage them, you know, part of engaging young people is not merely, okay, here's two hours, go at it. But it's about outreach, training, mentorship, and and finding out in what way, how can this station serve people of different communities and generations? Because it may be different, you know, because... As you mentioned early on, Matthew, you know, your students at UC Santa Cruz, if they listen to AMFM radio, most likely to listen in the car, not very likely to have, a, have, have something at home. So how does a community radio station square that circle, whether it's between its online signal podcasting or any number of other activities that maybe seem tangential to the AMFM signal but are still radio? What really struck me during one session, people, somebody was asking, how do we get young people to come to our station? And, and really the answer seems to be you need to go where they are. So yeah. it's, you know, you can't really sit around hoping and trying to figure out ways to get certain groups of people to come to your station. You really actually have to go into the communities where the people are who you want to participate. That, I think that's the reality of it. Yeah, so I think, you know, I was glad to hear these conversations being had. There's no easy answers. And part of it, though, a lot of those conversations are around people sharing strategies. Uh, Vanessa Maria Graber, who was on our last show, uh, mentioned some of them on, on that interview. So if you missed it, it's episode number 161. And she shared many strategies that they engage in in Philly Cam to help bring in folks from the community and go meet folks where they are, understanding that it's that. In this day and age with so many different platforms, it's no longer a matter of we just have an open door policy, you know, and it, it really is about this sort of active outreach. But I didn't, what I did not hear, I didn't hear a lot of defensiveness. I did not hear a lot of people moaning and groaning about this. It was much more sharing of ideas and trying to maybe even, you know, and ask for practical advice rather than what I've heard in, in some venues in the past where you ask for advice that you don't want, right? It's the, well, how do we do this? Well, you do, <sighs> it's so hard, uh, we don't want to, you know, all the defensive sort of things rather than that. It seemed like people were really attentively listening and trying to process. Yeah. I don't know what comes out of it, but because it's it's always, it's one thing to, to hear the idea, it's another thing to, to affect it. But uh, nevertheless, I thought there was a lot of very... Very well, good was, sharing. And it was a great mix of people from brand new stations. You know, yeah. there were brand new low power FM stations there. And also stations that are 50 year old 
FM community radio stations. So I think that makes for a good mix where people uh, are really excited to hear from people who have, you know, piloted certain programs or come up with a great, you know, strategy for doing X, Y, or Z. And, and, and there were even some of these brand new stations that were sharing tips like that. So, so that was cool to hear the knowledge sharing coming from both the long timers and the brand new folks. Everyone's got something to share. And so, so speaking of low power FM stations, uh, which uh, I think, you know, I think people often listening to Barrier Survivor know what that is, but well, I'll explain it very quickly for people who don't. They are a class of non-commercial radio stations that came into existence originally in uh, the year 2000, intended to give community groups the opportunity to get on the air inexpensively uh, with a somewhat uh, less complex licensing process. They are licensed in Windows, so there was a window in, uh, in the early 2000s when communities could apply for licenses, but the, there were many constraints placed on it, some by Congress, which meant that uh, they were harder to put on the air in big cities. And there was a second licensing window in 2013, almost exactly five years ago, where uh, the standards were changed so that there was opportunities in, in large cities like Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia and uh, brought many more of these. Uh, they must be non-commercial, is one of the requirements. Um, they run at low power. Uh, they, with a few exceptions, must be singularly owned, meaning the organization can own one station, and they may not be sold. You cannot sell a low power FM license, even though you can even sell a, a non-commercial license full power, but you can't sell low power license. Really trying to keep uh, radio stations in the community and I know, Jennifer, you were sort of looking at uh, where we are with, with low-power FM stations, community stations, um, especially compared to when we started this Radio Survivor Enterprise nine and a half years ago. Yeah, so, you know, we used to keep track of, I used to write about the FCC's quarterly station counts, and I haven't done that in a while, but I just looked from September 30th, 2018, the latest count for the number of licensed low-power FM stations in the U.S. is... 2175 and that compares with at September 30th tw- September 30th 2009 there were only 861 low power fm stations which makes sense because that was before the big uh, licensing window uh, the application window opened That's in 1314 stations now how many of those stations are operating these are all these. These would be all the operating. Stations. So these would be operating. These are these are stations in which there's people. Yeah. There's people doing broadcasting. Yeah. When it's in the FCC count, you know, I mean, obviously there could be a station that's on a, a, a sanctioned hiatus. You can apply if you need to move or something. But for the most part, these are licensed stations, so they should be on the air. Well, I have to catch up with some of these stations because there's a particular station in Mississippi that is a low power FM radio station. That advocates for cats. Oh yeah, the cat flash radio. That's right. And I tried to. I checked in with them shortly after they got the license, and they sort of sounded like they were struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that they are doing better at this point. And I'm definitely. I'm making a mental note this weekend to see if I can give them a call because I, as you know, cats are a very important part of my um, my my reason for existing, and. Um, uh, I just want to see if they actually got there. I mean, it was just, it's, it, it, they were veterinarians, and it was a you know an mm-hmm. animal advocacy 
um, um, group that got this radio station, and they call it Cat Flash Radio. I want to see how they're doing. So I think we put the numbers to it here. Last, you know, in the last episode introduction, I said we've seen the greatest flowering of non-commercial radio and community radio ever in history, and I think these numbers prove it out. Not every single one of these stations necessarily operates as a community station in the way we think of it. Many of them are uh, operated by a nonprofit, you know, and, and uh, may may generate their programming differently. Many are owned by churches and religious organizations that may air some satellite programming or or much more sort of uh, localized kind of religious programming. But nevertheless, in the mix, there are dozens, hundreds of, of community or college stations or stations really kind of operating in, in, that, in that mode. Yeah, some high school stations, some that are at municipalities, so, you know, emergency type stations. But even some of those are airing music programming and community type programming. Absolutely. This is, this is not tilting at windmills. Right, this is radio, I think, and it shows a true demand, a true need that I think further brings us closes the circle here, Matthew, that we're in the post radio is dead right. time. Yeah, we're in the post radio is dead time. We're in we're in the time where people are no longer saying that, um, but nobody quite knows what what the afterlife era um, is going to look like. We'll have to get a, we'll have to get ourselves a radio medium yes. to, to connect with the radio afterlife. Yes. <laughs> yes, a Ouija board. We'll get a Ouija we'll we, get a, we need to get the radio Ouija we need a, board. We need a Ouija I'm just board. thinking of all of the linguistic implications of a radio medium and you're kind of blowing my mind. <laughs> that could, that could be a, it could be a reality show, the Long Island uh, radio medium on, on A and E or Bravo or something, but uh, we could turn it into we could turn it into a, 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 a scripted podcast series, a reality podcast series. Oh, now I'm thinking about haunted radio the too. Another well, there, is, there is a very popular um, podcast that is basically about a haunted radio station. Yes, right. Welcome, welcome to Night Welcome to Night which, which I listen to, by the way. So maybe they can connect us with the radio afterlife. Yeah. I think that's a great place for us to wrap it up here on Radio Survivor. Uh, Once again, we're at radiosurvivor.com. If you'd like to learn how to help us keep doing what we do, because, uh, you know, this is is pretty much a volunteer-type operation. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Uh, You can drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. If you have any comments about the show, and of course you can listen online, you can read our show notes there at our website. Uh, Matthew Lassar. Pleasure so to be here. Thank you for welcoming us into your home to come, come early and often. Jennifer Waits, so great to uh, to see you in person for a second week in a row. I know, it's great. Uh, normally we're, we're, we're doing it over the interwebs between San Francisco and Portland, but it's, it's great to see you. I'm Paul Reese-Mandel, and thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>